Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide, from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you there? Welcome to the podcast. Today, it's a real little bit of a gem. The other day, we spoke to Martin Wolf of the FT. Again, one of the greats, one of the greats about Brexit, Britain, where it's likely to go. Second part of that chat is a little bit later on on this podcast, and it's really about threats to the world. So we're going very, very big, John. We're doing climate change, we're doing demography, we're doing AI, we're doing the threat to democracy of AI and climate change together. And interestingly, one of the points that Martin Wolf is talking about is this massive demographic pressure, which is going to be coming from Africa to Europe. So European population is static and falling. African population is growing rapidly. Unless Africa grows economically and provides opportunity for people, they're going to move. Of course. And you and I, see what I did there? We're in Marseille. And Marseille is going to be the epicentre. Because Marseille, if you speak to French people, they will say, well, it's kind of the capital of the Maghreb. It's capital of North Africa, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it has a real North African feel to it. I mean, I don't know if you felt that when you were there. Well, actually, it was a bit diluted um, last weekend (laughs) with green... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the gargle. But with everyone down there, because we were down there for the rugby match, Ireland-France famous win, and it was mayhem in Marseille. Absolute. It was mayhem. It was mayhem. By the way, I actually avoided John's rollover lunches. John had, I don't, I've never, I've never met anybody. I've, we've heard of rollovers, like a big night, you roll over into the next day, in early houses and all that sort of, but to have like three rollover lunches, which is lunch, dinner, lunch, dinner, lunch, dinner. Oh my God. I'm still not right. And we're, we're half a week on and I'm still not right. But actually. But you're it, looking particularly fine. You're, you're, I'm, gonna, I, I'm just going to call you, I'm going to call you Marcella. <laughs> Hello, Marcella. Ça va, Marcella? But speaking of demographics, I'll tell you one thing, and this is a slight aside, but the mayhem in Marseille trying to get into the ground was, like, I love the French, I love France, all the rest, but they cannot organise anything. There was literally, we started going into the ground. I love this, an Irish person 
you know, accusing the French of not being able to organise. I mean, we are the least organised people in the world. Well, I tell you, we were started going into the, the, the ground 45 minutes beforehand. There was literally 20,000 people chock solid yeah, yeah, on yeah. the steps outside. All dying for a pee. Oh, yes, that's true. <laughs> Given how you're, the singing started and then it gradually petered out as the people got more and more pissed off. But I didn't get in till after the, the anthems. Oh. Uh, 45 minutes to walk 20 yards. Unbelievable. But what struck me about it... As it is, there's something that's on John's mind and he is not prepared to be silent about it. But you know the gilets jaunes and all that kind of stuff? You know, all these protests, the French love a good old protest. Yeah. But if you treat people like shit, the way the, the gendarmerie the C, the C, do... Well, the CRS were there. In, absolutely. In, in, in strength, yeah. And they, when you treat people like shit, there's going to be a reaction. And that reaction is generally quite violent. Yeah. And I can understand now why people get out onto the oh. streets. I was like, I was there. Yeah, come oh. here. On the other hand, I kept getting texts from John. And the more he said, oh, we're in, it's really cool. There's a scrum of people. Come and join us. I was like, ah, no, I think I'll go in the other thing. <laughs> we you know what, you know what really what, 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 what amazed me, the difference, cultural difference, right, was that inside the stadium, mm. there were a couple of bars, right? And there's, I arrived in, and I was about 15 minutes before the game, right? Yeah. So you go to the, there was a five fellas in the queue for a pint, right? Right. The French lads are all chatting to each other, the barman. The other way an Irish barman is just a milking machine when it comes to giving out pints. It's like hundreds of pints across and there's no fuckology, right? (laughs) These French guys are asking us about the weather and things. I was like, no, just (laughs) give us a drink and hurry up, Jean-Claude, get the finger out. Exactly. There's 50,000 people behind you waiting for a drink. No, but next week we're going to be talking about Avignon, where I went the day after, Mm. which is the old papal city. And there was a Pont d'Avignon, which is a very famous... There's a very famous song that all French school kids learn. Yeah, yeah. And it actually, that, that whole part of the world, I found absolutely fascinating. Save all that for next week. Save all that way, because we've got lots coming yeah. about 17th century economics, 17th century climate change. It's good really stuff. good stuff. 17th century demographic change. And it's going to be a link to what happened here. There's going to be a link between what happened to the French Huguenots and what happened to Irish Catholics in the 17th century. Beautiful. Reflective, all good. But... There's a thing that annoyed me today. Oh? RTE. Oh. RTE reappointed Deloitte, who were the auditors that missed everything. So, little recap. They're like the DUP of auditors. Exactly, the the DUP. (laughs) Right. So, little recap. We know what happened at RTE. The senior management basically cooked the books. Yeah. In effect, right? Yeah, yeah. And the role of the auditor is you're paid to make sure you find out who is cooking the books on behalf of the board and on behalf of the taxpayer, Mm. right? If you don't find that, you haven't done your job. So usually in the world, there's consequences for that, right? The consequences, you don't get the next gig. Yes. And RTE, and I read the paper yesterday and it said, RTE reappoint Deloitte despite Deloitte not seeing all the chicanery. Headline should have read, RTE reappoint Deloitte because they didn't see the chicanery because they're all on the same side. Yeah, it's all this yeah, cozy yeah, yeah. cartel. And I think this is what, this is the sort of kind of insider dumb that pisses people off when they see it. They say, well, okay, you know, 
let's have consequences. Well, I, I read that article too, and it actually it did remind me of your one man show, The Outsiders, which was all about that. How there were no consequences for the bankers and all the all the people who and just, the consultants and yeah, all that sort of stuff who, who made a mess of everything, and we're all paying for it, and they just shifted on to their next gig. It was just like musical chairs, really. Exactly. And you see, what happens is then, so you have a strange situation where RTE is paid by the taxpayer mm. through the licence fee. But a part of that licence fee goes to pay Deloitte. So Deloitte are, in effect, working for the taxpayer, but they're both working against the taxpayer because they're both disguising what they're doing with taxpayers' money. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's bizarre stuff, right? Yeah, and it's blood-boiling it, stuff. It may well be the case that Deloitte or whoever was the auditor didn't look the other way, but actually made a mistake. That's fine. And people make mistakes, right? But there should be consequences. You shouldn't be able to say, well, look, just give us the next gig. And that's the sense that there's no responsibility taken. There's no consequence for your reaction. And we just go on as if nothing happened. But we spoke about this before. And it is the insider outside of things. Yeah. And we spoke about this before, about, you know, we've both worked for RT and I've seen it. There is no consequence for doing a shit job in RTE. Yeah, you have Deloitte doing a shit job. You're the former chief executive of RTE, not turning up to explain anything at all. I mean, anything. Yeah. But again, we let's. it's not just RTE. It's the proximity of big business and big public sector abusing taxpayers' money with impunity and suggesting that, you know what, doesn't really matter. And all the while, this is pissing people off. Yeah. And this is the stuff that feeds into elections. This is the first stuff that feeds into votes. And this yeah. is the stuff that feeds into us and them and all that sort of stuff. So, Mark, do you know, just, just to calm you down. I know, I'm, I'm calm. I'm, I, I'm going to play you some soothing music. Oh, yes. Well, it's a very big day in the McWilliams household today because Lucy has a new single just released called Old Ways. She's going to be playing a couple of gigs, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But let's just, uh, John, what you did there. Lovely. Okay, we'll we'll play the whole track on the way out. Well, it's a humdinger, by the way. Yeah, no, it's a it's it, it is a classic. Let us now go, John, and let us talk about the issues at hand, which are the major threats to the global economy and society. Yeah. And let's go back and finish the conversation with Martin Wolf of EFT and get his take on the big five threats to, in effect, global stability over the coming years. It's not really a reassuring listen, I'm going to warn you. It's a serious listen, but it lays things out very clearly. So let's go to London, talk to Martin. Martin Wolf of the FT wrote a piece last week about risks to the global world. I remember you published a book about 10 years ago about shocks. Do you remember that one? Yeah, um, shifts and shocks. Shifts and shocks and basically a way of looking at the world. The world shifts in sort of big cyclical ways. And then those shifts are punctuated by shocks that he's kind of risks to the society and risks to the economy. And it's understanding these two massive tectonic issues gives you a good way to look at the world. And I kind of thought of that when I read, when I read the piece there last week. Explain to me, you're talking about the risk to the global economy and consequently global society, geopolitics, politics. Where do we start? 
So the way I've actually done three pieces on these theme in the last two weeks, two on the world economy and one on globalization more specifically and the future of globalization. I'll try and put them together as quickly as I can. So if we think about where we are, I and the prospects, I divide the forces in the fall or the factors in the following way. The underlying drivers, which are long-term, pretty predictable, they're not certain, but pretty predictable and will continue to change everything. There were five of them. There are first and foremost, I think possibly the most important world, demography and mm-hmm. the profound demographic changes of our world, which the most important are aging, which you must know all about too in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And of course, the fact that pretty well all the population growth in the world is occurring in two places, and the most important of which is sub-Saharan Africa, which is exploding in population, the other one being South Asia. That's where population growth is occurring. And in most other parts of the world, we are below replacement level. So that's a huge factor. The second thing I point to is climate. It seems to me absolutely certain that global warming will continue, probably exceed all the limits we are trying to keep us below, but it will certainly continue for the next 10, 20 years. And that's going to be very, very disruptive. The third is technological change. And I think the more I look at it, the more I feel, and I've just spent time talking to one of the experts in AI yesterday, that the artificial intelligence revolution combined with what we already created is going to be absolutely colossal, seismic. Then the fourth is the rise of Asia, the fundamental transformation of the locus of production. China is now far and away the world's largest manufacturing power. It's become a technological rival uh, across the full spectrum. India is really growing pretty rapidly. This is an absolutely fundamental shift of power. The West is still the largest entity, but this is a tremendous seismic And The last is growth itself, that one of the most extraordinary statistics is ever since 1950, there's only been two years in which the world economy has shrunk. Every single year it's grown, and I think it is likely to continue to grow. So those are the five driving factors, and and I think on all these, we know more or less where we're going to be 10 to 20 years from now, barring some colossal, uh, you know, a huge pandemic, global thermonuclear war, something like that. Those are the driving forces. Then we have a huge number of obvious risks. We can't assess their probabilities. And this has become very real to us because just in the last four years, two of those risks have been realized. The pandemic was a risk that we knew about and wars. We've had two significant wars and we got lots more. And there are many, many other possible risks which could materialize, and they're somewhat random, though they're not completely random. Obviously, wars occur in certain circumstances more probably than others. We can deal with them in different ways. But right now, we're living in a world which has been shaped, in addition to the driving forces I've mentioned, by uh, a series of shocks, the most important of the global financial crisis now about 15 years ago, and the pandemic and these two wars. Um, And the difficulty is we don't know whether there are going to be more shocks, because they could be. I could list all these shocks. And we don't know quite how these will unwind. If they do, 
you know, we don't have more shocks. And if they don't come, if they unwind slowly, we could get back to smoother water. But, and then, then we get to the, to the, uh, to the last thing I list as things people should think about, what I call the underlying fragilities, which will determine how well we can cope with the drivers interacting with possible shocks. And the most important of those are debt, enormously high debt, public and private across most of the world. The possibility of the shattering of the global trade system. I think I didn't discuss that so but that's clearly a possibility. That's a fragility because we are so internationally integrated. And then there are politics. And the key elements here are domestic politics, the crisis of democracy, possible election of Trump is a symptom of that, and international politics, the incredibly sensitive relationships between China and the US, which they're trying to manage. So those are the forces that are operating on it. And if you put these things together, you realize what a pervasively uncertain world we live in. I would bet that we will still continue to grow. We will have profound economic changes. But I also would bet we're going to continue to have some very large political upheavals, and these could involve global conflict, and those have huge downsides. So the steady state, if everything calms down, would be towards a more cooperative, growing world in which these crises we've had sort of fade away. And I think that's what the US and China are now working for. But there's a huge number of risks surrounding that. Uh, and we've had recent experience of them. And it's, there's no reason to suppose we're at the end of it. I mean, this is this is extraordinary stuff. Let's just turn back at the big trends, right? Your demographic trends, right? What does it mean for the world where the population of one part of the world, the West, is not replacing and the population of sub-Saharan Africa is not only replacing itself, but is surging. What does that mean for migration, for economic activity, for innovation, for all these things that come with significant young populations? I think that, and by the way, I would add to that, because it's very important, is that China is aging more quickly, though it's still younger than we are. And uh, it's fertility rate now is is basically half of replacement so its population is set to shrink so the big high the big areas of the world economy now are suffering from very significant demographic collapses the us is actually in the relatively good position well what does it mean i think there are two answers to that unfortunately is one we don't know because it's not clear the sub-Saharan Africans will be able to exploit their fertility, their population dividend, as it's sometimes called, the dividend of having lots and lots of young people as the birth rate continues to decline, which it will. The Indians have had this opportunity for a long time, but they've never really exploited it, and they still have big unemployment problems as a result. So will this accelerate the growth of sub-Saharan Africa on its own? I would guess not. There's an opportunity there, but exploiting that opportunity with these huge baby booms is very difficult. You have to educate people. You have to create economic system in which productive activity is, is encouraged and successful. And unfortunately, right at the moment, this is not going very well. In fact, the last 10 years or so for sub-Saharan Africa have been really poor. I won't go into that in more detail. So 
If that continues, which I think is the most likely outcome, and if we assume that climate will get worse too, there is a must be a high probability that the migration problems we've had, mostly across the Mediterranean, will get worse, possibly much worse. And my prediction, therefore, with great um, sadness, is that the, the politics of immigration and managing the politics of immigration will become an even more dominant feature of our politics than they already are. And I think that, and that brings us back to other discussions we've had, that means that the right-wing populists are going to have fuel for their campaigns. And if you add into that the probability that developing countries with these demographics will also, and economics, will have political instability and even civil war, this becomes even more certain. So I regard that as pretty well the most obvious prediction about the future is that the migration problem will get worse. So let's let's just take that. The migration problem gets worse. And then you look at the Western societies. Let's talk about AI. I mean, AI has been compared to We've done it in this podcast, Gutenberg, the printing press, that type of revolutionary change that really shifted societies in the 16th century and 17th century. We kind of forget, you know, it led to the Reformation. The Reformation led to the Thirty Years' War. I mean, this was not a this was not a nice time to be European by any yep. stretch of the imagination. You know, that type of global pressure, immigration, flows, migration. What does AI do to the broad middle class in the reasonably comfortable West over the course of the next while. I mean, where does it push jobs that were reasonably secure in the past? It definitely will create new jobs, but it's that transition from the old to the new, which is the fragile part. Yes, I think that the second huge question, I would stress that I have no expertise in this. So I just based on a priori thinking and talking to a few very, very smart people who tend to disagree on these things. But one way we can think about this, it's clearly no, there's no consensus on this yes. yet. But there seems to me a very, very good chance that these systems, as they evolve, will be able to do a very large proportion of the, what you might call the information processing and communication jobs of our societies. And basically, those are the most lucrative. And they're the ones that define our social hierarchies. If you, if you think about it, for a very long time, the dominant elements in our social hierarchies were the top bureaucrats and the soldiers, the knights. The, the Brahmins warriors. and the warriors. The Brahmins and the warriors. But now, if you look at the numbers, we really have very few warriors and we have lots of Brahmins. And that's why almost half of our population goes to universities and they all expect Brahmin jobs. <laughs> and that is exactly what AI is going for because the, these machines can absorb and process information and spew it out reliably without mistakes. Well, more or less reliably. I'll leave aside the hallucinations. It, with a speed and accuracy that no human being can match. And it's unlatable that it's going to demolish huge proportions of our current jobs. 
I don't see why it is necessarily the case that all these jobs will be replaced any more than the advances of productivity in manufacturing led to the replacement of the lost jobs with new jobs in manufacturing. They didn't. They led to the replacement with a lot of casual work, which most of which was not very satisfactory. People on bicycles delivering packages for Amazon and people in warehouses and so forth. So it seems to me that what AI is going for is the thing that we would consider in our society, and historically we might have considered, as the the core characteristic of human beings, namely their ability to think. And uh, and if that's right, it might indeed be the most revolutionary moment in our economics. So my only column on this subject, which I, that with, which I wrote almost a year ago, which I still think is probably right, basically made two points about the AI revolution. It started by pointing out what's happened to the horse as an economic input in the last 140 years. And remember, the horse was our really important economic input in 1880. That was the main vehicle and the main source of transport. And it's gone. Now it's just entertainment. Well, why shouldn't that happen to human beings? I don't think there's any logical reason why that couldn't. Economists always say, well, it never has so far. Well, that's the, the the famous joke about the turkey who comments, to his friends in early December about how kind and gentle the the farmers are who feed them so wonderfully. And, well, we know what happens to the turkey. So the one possibility is I think that this could be a decisive shift. And so that, as I joke, the next Martin will, will be a computer. And the other thing that I'm absolutely convinced of is that we have no idea how to regulate this and no capacity to do so. So I do believe we are on the cusp of one of the really great technological revolutions, as you indicated, and at least as big as the internet, probably more so. And that fits with the technological revolution, which is which I've already mentioned, which is ongoing and has to do with extraordinary progress in our processing power. Moore's law and the effects of Moore's law continues to operate. And it, over a, now 60 years, it's dramatic. And again, the ultimate consequence for human society, its functioning is not clear, but I do wonder whether our current political arrangements will survive in this sort of world. Martin Wolf, we could talk all day, but there's so much food for thought there. John and I are going to come back. We've got to digest all this when we come Absolutely. back in. No, but it's, it's funny, funny. Do you remember Keynes was saying years ago that eventually we'll all be chilling out and doing the things we want to do? Yeah. Was he right? Well, if we are sensible... We will socialize, I mean, this is socialism. We will have to socialize these means of production. We cannot allow 10 or five or 10 firms to monopolize this and own all the profits and their owners own all the profits because then we'll live in the most feudal society imaginable with everybody else. What will they do? So we'll have to socialize these means of production and share out the goodies. But there's a very big but. Let's suppose we do that. We're all live wonderful, sybaritic, idle lives with machines do everything. Do you think that human beings can really be satisfied en masse with a life in which what they do is irrelevant to anybody else's happiness or welfare in any obvious economic way? It is a transformation. You know, it's moving out of scarcity in a, a world in which everybody lives in lotus land. 
if that's if we do it well. If we do it badly, everybody eats redundant and most go onto the scrappy. But if we do it well, we live in lotus land, if that's right, in this high productive world. And uh, I don't think human beings are very good at coping with that. Everything I see indicates we need the meaning in our lives of work. It's part of what we've evolved to do. And we need to think that work, whatever it is, is valuable. And I don't know how we're going to do that. Martin, we will leave it there in that philosophical point. But it is true, the Lotus Eaters, what happened to them? Wasn't the best way to end. Martin, that was great. Really good stuff. Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for your time. And we will talk to you very soon. I hope so. It's been an immense pleasure to talk to you again, David. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Our friend Martin is at it again. What's he at, John? Sybaritic Idle Lives. Ah, yes. That man has... That man has studied the classics. That yes. man has studied the classics. Okay, so last week we had... Or two days ago we had Sui Generous yes. and Sui Generosity. <laughs> and this week we wanted, we will talk about the substance of what Martin was saying about, you know, the, the economics. But yes, the Sybaritic life. The new word for me, you see. Which is the life of the lotus eater. And yes. the lotus eaters, John, were people who lived on an island in Greece. And if you read... I thought they were a band from the 80s. They, are, they were a band from the 80s with big, big hair. <laughs> yes. First picture of you? It's the first picture of summer. Oh, oh. He always hits the notes. He always holds those notes. But the Lotus Eaters, John, the yeah. Lotus Eaters, the Odyssey, book by yes. Homer, yeah. of which our good friend, Mr. Joyce, based the Ulysses yeah. idea on, right? So you have Odysseus going around trying to find home. Yeah. And... He's mooching around all around the Aegean. And one of the islands he stumbles across is the lotus eaters. And the lotus eaters are fellas who are eating from the lotus tree. And the fruit of the lotus tree, you'd really like this, it's right mm. up your alley, is a narcotic, right? Nice. So they get off their box. So the lotus eaters are, in effect, stone. You know, when people think that smoking and, you know, drugs are new, they're yeah. not. Humans have been doing shit for years, right? Absolutely. So that's the lotus eaters. So right? The whole thing about Jesus and walking on water, all the lads were 
baked off their nuts. <laughs> it was a mirage. It was a mirage. Hey. Exactly. At the <laughs> water. Dude, man. The Big Lebowski as Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the Greek Empire, this is all about Greeks. The Greek Empire was not an empire like the Persian Empire. Mm. So the Persian Empire was a massive, and the Egyptian Empire, these were massive agricultural empires where the boss men took over and subjugated huge tracts of land. They then forced these people to work for them. They generated grain surpluses, and yeah. that's how they stayed in power. Yeah. The Greeks changed this completely, which is why Greek culture was so different to everything else. And the Greeks had a massive empire, but it was never based on territorial conquest. It was always based on Greek trading cities all around the Mediterranean, right. the Black Sea, and the Aegean. Mm. Now, our friend Plato described this beautifully as describing the cities as being like frogs looking into a pond, right? So you can imagine <laughs> frogs looking into a okay. pond, the pond being the Mediterranean, the Aegean, and the Black Sea. It's yeah. a lovely, lovely way of describing yeah. Greek culture. And they were brought together by a combination of philosophy, ideology in terms of Greek civilization, and money. Mm. Money was the big thing. The drachma had them all together. And they were commercial cities and very, very... Very, very sophisticated places, right? Because Greek culture is so different to everything yeah. else. But the place that you and I should have lived was Sybaris, right? right. Which, is, which is basically on the, the, the boot of Italy, right beside Sicily, Yes, right? And these people were so wealthy that they just became indulgent. This kind of hung around. Oh, terrific. The, and it was, this was the biggest Greek city in Italy. And imagine right. there were many Greek cities in Italy. Rome, again, yeah, of course. Syracuse on, on, Syracuse yeah, being the big yeah, yeah. one. And, and who was from Syracuse? Archimedes. Ah, okay. Archimedes. Yes, yeah, yeah. And we're going to be talking about mathematics. Right. And the economics of mathematics with Colm O'Regan next week. Right. But the Sybaritic lifestyle is basically you're hanging out, indulging, because <sighs> it was so rich that these guys could just yeah. chill and relax and do nothing. Yeah. That's what Martin was talking about. But let's get back to the economics. So what he was talking about was AI. Yes. And allowing us to have that kind of lifestyle. Actually, one of the things he did say, he, he talked about, you know, AI is going to take over and it will change society in the same way as the horse was a really yes. important part of, of society and production. Uh, it was a production cost. Ooh, that sounded good. But then he said, but horses became entertainment eventually. Yeah. And so he was saying that humans are going to become entertainment. And I was thinking... Um, entertainment for whom? Are we going to be dancing for computers? We are going to be doing podcasts for computers, right? We are going to... No, but I mean, his point is, is, yeah. is, is a really good one, which is that we are talking about a massive technological shift. Maybe like, for example, we talked about the printing press, but maybe even more like something like the introduction of electricity. Yeah. So electricity changed the whole world. You know, Thomas Edison was sitting around going, oh, this light bulb, this is an interesting thing, right? And of course, Nikola Tesla... Of course, of which yeah. Which the Tesla's yeah. mentioned after, yeah. named after. And the Croats say he's Croat. I love that. The Croats say he's Croats and the Serbs say he's Serb. Only mm. in Yugos former Yugoslavia. <laughs> but, you know, that changed the world. It changed yeah. how we lived, yeah. changed how we worked, all that sort of stuff. And, of course, it did for the horse. What did for the horse was rubber and the combustion engine. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was, was it Henry Ford was asked if people had been asked in 1900 what they wanted for transport, they would have said faster horses. Exactly. And what happened was cars and the yeah. horse is gone. So what he's saying yeah. is that a huge amount of our work, our intellectual work, our brain power work, etc., could well be done by AI in the future. Mm. So then what happens, people, right? Do we have the Sybaritic lifestyle, etc.? 
But what he means, and he goes back to, and I remember talking about Keynes at the end. Keynes said the same thing is going to happen. Yeah. Right? That basically people will become redundant in terms of what we used to do. Mm. And what Martin is saying, I think, is that over the last 2,000 years, but particularly over the last 300 years, changes in technologies have always led to people, like the Luddites in England, Mm. saying, you know, oh my God, if we embrace this technology, our jobs will be gone and we will never do anything else. But what we actually find has happened, particularly when the internet came, was people said, oh my God, the internet's going to wipe out so many jobs. In actual fact, an entire internet economy emerged, of which we're part of it. I mean, podcasting is part of the internet economy. Yes, indeed. But that doesn't worry me at all. What what it turns into, it's the transition it's the period transition, yeah. is is the tricky bit. Well, we're, in, we're in it now. Yes, we are in it now. But he did also talk about that society needs to become more socialist, yeah. which I thought was really curious, particularly at a time when we were talking about Malie and the rise of libertarianism. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that what you always see is these sort of pendulum swings. So you, let's say you get a complete shock to the system. Right, not just like AI, but I mean, I think we we spoke about the Argentinians being traumatized, a traumatized race mm. after fifty years of economic underperformance, and their transition that you speak about has been going on for years. So they've been transitioning from a rich to a poor society. This yeah. is very unusual because most societies in this growth era transition from poor to rich, mm. and they have gone for libertarianism that can say, look, we've seen all that. So the result of the transition has been libertarianism for them. Mm. But what Martin Wolf is saying is that the long-term implications of AI is that unless we want to turn back into a feudal society, and I think about the word feudal, mm. feudal betokens ideas of the early Middle Ages, right? Mm. And you have yeah. basically an entirely dependent agricultural class, which is genuflecting to the church and the squires, right? Yeah, yeah. The kings, right? He's saying, unless we want to go there, we need to socialize the gains from AI. That means we need to go back to Roosevelt, not FDR Roosevelt, but we need to go back to Teddy Roosevelt, who basically broke up all these big companies. Yes. Right? And he said, you're too big. Those oil companies, those rail companies are too big. We're going to break you up. That has to happen with AI companies. That has to happen. Because if we don't socialize, what is in effect human intelligence? This Mm. is what, if we privatize collective human intelligence, we will destroy democracy. We will destroy the social contract. And we will have Mark Zuckerbergs of this world. Mm. Those sort of people. You know what I found very interesting about Mark Zuckerberg? He's the person that says, oh, he's Mr. Progress, right? Mm. Do you know what he's just done? He's just bought himself an island in Hawaii, which is a bet on Armageddon. That really freaks me out. Right. If the guy who actually knows most about progress in the world is actually in his personal life buying himself a massive, He's massive a doomsday island. prepper. He's a doomsday prepper. He's an Armageddonist. It's filled full of tins of beans. Tins of beans, but if you think about yeah. it, the guys who are... Most like your man Peter Thiel and all those big tech people. Yeah. Those guys who are most invested in progress and the future and telling us it's all going to be great are buying themselves hideaways all over the world just in case it all goes wrong, which is really terrifying. But these are also the guys who are promoting this whole philosophy of EAC and libertarianism. Eff- yeah. Effective accelerationism, which is all about. Just let AI and technology loose. 
with no restrictions, no nothing. And if it upends society, so, so be, be it. it. Because they have their gaff yeah. in Hawaii. That's why we end with Marx. We end with Marx, right? Marx talked about owning the commanding heights of the economy. He talked about the key thing was owning the means of production. Mm. That's the basis of Das Kapital, right? That's the actual whole thing. Yeah. And here we have Martin Wolf, the main columnist of the Financial Times, that we might not suggest would be Marxist in their DNA. <laughs> John yes. Davis that we might not suggest is Marxist in their DNA, right? But everyone moving to this idea that, hold on a second, it's not necessarily we go back to the Communist Manifesto in 1848, but what we realise is that we have to own the means of production. And if the means of production are AI, and if we allow a tiny amount of feudal techno-overlords yeah. to own that, we will destroy society. So, John, this is what's at stake, right? It's not just about share prices of AI companies. It's not just about a technology that might change the world. It's actually about who owns the world. And that's a pretty big question to answer. Just before we go, we're going to play out with Lucy's new track, which is the third track on a forthcoming EP, which is out in the end of March. And to coincide with that, yeah. she has two gigs which we may well go to, just coming up to Easter weekend. Wednesday, she's playing the 27th of March in London, Dalston. Nice. Neck of the woods that you and I don't particularly know. Yes. But I know your daughter lives over there at Neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah, she's out so, there. She, Lucy's playing the London Servant Jazz Quarter. Who doesn't want to play there, right? <laughs> and then the following night, March 28th, Thursday night, she is playing in Grand Social in Dublin to coincide with this new EP. So maybe let's play out with a little bit of music. But the point about AI, John, what we're making there is that yeah. you still cannot take away what I describe as the placenta of human creativity, <laughs> which is the human mind. Musicians, artists, poets, writers, all these creatives will still be in demand because they are unique and they can't be just replicated. So, so let's be generous. <laughs> Sybarithic, Lotus Eaters. Let's have a Lotus Eater play out with Lucy's new track. Baby, now it's just too 
Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. 